The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Talking Space for Monday, November 15th, 2010. This is show number 238. My name is Gene McCalka, and today I have Mr. Mark Ratterman with me today. Good evening to you, sir. I am here, present, accounted for, and ready to talk. All right. We are we are light two guests, Gina Herlihy and uh, Sawyer Rosenstein. Have, uh, got some personal business to attend to, but uh, we will soldier on. Well, we have some very interesting news from uh, from the uh, shuttle front today. Uh, apparently, a fourth crack has been found in external tank number number two thirty seven. Uh, this is a, um, a uh, the first of se- you know, this is the fourth of several of uh, a few cracks that they've discovered. Um, well, what is Mark? Mark, help me out here a little bit. The um, uh, the cracks located where I believe it's also it's right behind the insul- insulation, correct? Yeah, it's in the inner tank area between the uh, liquid oxygen and hydrogen main, you know, prim- primary tanks. Uh, it's that inner tank in between area, and there's stringers to provide it the structural strength. And uh, as we've heard, that's where the cracks are actually occurring that showed up through that foam. And do we know how critical these cracks are in there? I mean, I know that they've they've got some folks going in there to to, to shore up those uh, those areas. But what what the the largest one is about uh, nine inches? Is that it, or that I've, yeah. that I've seen? You know, it's kind of hard to visualize this because the tank is so big, and uh, you know these may be minor, and apparently it's something that they've seen before on on these other uh, other tanks in recent memory. But uh, yeah, they're they're what nine inches, uh, you know, not that big. But it kind of concerns me never having paid attention to this particular detail. Of course, this is something usually that's caught at the uh, manufacturer, possibly in the VAB. Not not something that I remember hearing about at the pad before. Yeah, neither neither did I. I, I understand too that there were. You know, this is not a new. Um, uh, this is not a new uh, phenomenon with the external tank either. There were a few of them. I believe it was tank ni- number 91 that they found something along these lines with. I remember it being mentioned um, at one of the uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Board hearings. And um, uh, it was just something that they were looking at and something that, you know, it was a known issue and so on. But they've been able to, to lick the problem at the factory. But I've never heard them trying to go ahead and fix it on on uh, on the pad before. So this is an interesting little development. Um, I know they're they're still 
soldiering on for a November, a possible November 30th launch for STS-133. I should also mention, too, that the article I'm looking at from Spaceflight Now indicated that the uh, one of the offend the big offender from uh, from the, the scrub last time, the ground umbilical carrier plate or GUCP or GUP. Um, a replacement has been installed on the tank, um, and uh, the measurements are looking at it, and they're saying that it's just about near perfect. Um, so, uh, but although I, I don't know if there's been a, a tanking test uh, uh, scheduled for that, uh, have you heard anything, Mark? No, apparently they. Um, I think everything is going to be down to the wire on on this on this uh, launch window. I, I kind of suspect that uh, the repairs are going to start when they've given every every bit of analysis they can to the to the cracks themselves. As far as the foam repair work, that'll be the last thing to start, and it'll probably push right into. Uh, I hope it doesn't, but it could push right into the beginning of a uh, the beginning of an extended launch countdown because they're talking about doing a possible tanking test that would be part of an extended uh, countdown that normally starts with launch minus four days. So what do you think the odds are of making this next launch window? And biting my – it's going to be a nail biter, I think. Uh, happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> that was my my gut feeling. I don't want to, you know, jinx anything, but I'm I'm thinking we're we're we might be looking at February. That's my that's my gut feeling. But uh we'll we'll you know, we'll see. Who knows? I, I could be wrong here. I, I you know, so <laughs> I'm I'm curious. I read that for the uh for the foam work when they get to where they're reapplying the foam that they've got an environmental enclosure around the damage site and uh, that, that this is an important factor in, in applying the foam and having the foam cure properly. And I know Florida, and this time of year, I mean, it's not as dramatic as it is elsewhere, but we go from warm temperatures to cool temperatures, high humidity, low humidity, windy days, calm days, uh, you know, and, you know, to, to isolate a work area and have it be within whatever the specs are that they need. I, I hope it works. I'm sure that if it doesn't work that they'll they'll do the prudent thing and say, you know, we need to we need to re rethink our process here and, and stop. They'll be safe about it. But um, gee whiz, I mean the, uh, the the folks working on the shuttle, they don't get a break. They're they're inventing stuff, you know, the last uh, last few flights here they are inventing new things to deal with with new problems. Indeed, and I'm, prob- I'm sure they've, uh, they're looking at their, uh, their bag of tricks very, very closely to see what they can do to pull out and, uh, uh, and fix this little, little problem here. But indeed, they don't get a break. <laughs> and, and dare I bring this up, this is something that you've probably seen and, and can, uh, can comment on, but what are the implications if 133 does go to next year? I mean, it could it could affect budget for the remaining launches, not necessarily Endeavor, but possibly Endeavor, and could affect the uh, 135 Atlantis flight that hasn't been funded yet. That could be a scrub. We could end up with a, a complete shuttle tank and SRBs to go to a museum somewhere. 
Yeah, and from what I'm hearing, that might not be uh, the route to go. Um, there, there's still some things that uh, you know need to be done, and I think STS-135 uh, needs to go at this point. Um, just from a logistics standpoint, I mean, if you want the shuttle right now is the only vehicle that can probably get that faulty pump uh, down. And uh, so the folks back here on the ground can go ahead and do some analysis of, if you remember, that faulty coolant uh, pump that failed over over the summer. That's mm -hmm. still up there, and that's oh, yeah. still sort of in a staging area right now. And and uh, uh, the shuttle is the only vehicle right now that can bring that thing home. We don't have – nobody else has got anything that can do that. The other thing, too, is, is I'm sure – you know, I think John Shannon – Alluded this, alluded to this during a, um, a press conference, you know, uh, pre-launch uh, uh, for STS-133, that uh, he felt that STS-135 should fly, uh, just on a logistics standpoint alone. And from what he's seen, if, if the shuttle program ends and they're not in a in a good posture, you know, for the for the International Space Station, he called that, you know, almost. A, if I, I'm and I'm paraphrasing here, he almost called it criminal. Just curious, uh, with what we're talking about, do you want to go on into the story that uh, that we've planned about the uh, commission and their recommendations to the White House on budget? Yeah, you know, there, before I do that, though, there's one other other question I, I want to just throw out there because I saw this on Twitter and it does have some relevance to to, to what we're talking about. Um, one individual, I'm trying to remember who it was now, uh, made a comment that. You know that they were kind of you know sad to see the shuttle go, but maybe all of these problems that are plaguing 133 is an example of why the shuttle needs to be retired. Do you buy that? Um, it's been on the back of my mind, uh, you know, a few times where it kind of, you know, I have to be honest. It's okay. This is a 30-year-old spacecraft. The design is predates the the first flight. It's been upgraded, you know, many, many times more than, than we could uh, imagine if we were to see a list of what some of the modernizations and upgrades were. But still, it's, a, it's an old space transportation system. And uh, at some point, as has been discussed many times, it's time to, uh, time to discontinue this mode of access to space and go on to, uh, to a new one. I was I was almost leaning along the same lines, but I think too the the individual had more emphasis on the orbiter, and you know this this issue is not plaguing the orbiter. Although the, the discovery herself did have some, shall we say, issues early on mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, with the OMS and so on. So I don't know, maybe you know maybe, maybe there is some some truth to that. So well, there is. And here's the other side of the coin. This is the only machine that can do what it does. There is nothing on the planet that comes close. And so in that respect, if you've got some problems to, to work through, it's just part of the game. And, uh, you know, I don't see the, the folks at NASA being upset about all this. To them, it's business as usual. Frustrating, but still just part of the routine that they've seen time and time again. So in that respect, you know, hey, we can be patient, uh, and I hope and pray that uh, 
the politicians will get behind it when it comes to funding for 135. Indeed. And speaking of the politicians, that's a good segue for the next uh, the next topic. Uh, apparently, um, the uh, the White House Deficit Reduction Commission had a little bit of a, a meeting uh, led by uh, Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson. Uh, and their recommendation is to go ahead and eliminate funding for commercial spaceflight. They apparently made 58 spending cut recommendations to the White House. And number 24 is, quote, eliminate funding for commercial spaceflight. And I am going to go ahead and quote from the, uh, the Florida Today article uh, dated um, November 11th on this. Um, this subsidy to private se- to the private sector is costly, and while commercial spaceflight is a worthy worthy goal, it is unclear why the federal government should be subsidizing the training of potential crews for such flights, according to the report. So they're talking about basically, from if I'm gathering this right, they're talking about uh, putting the entire six billion dollars uh, that. Uh, President Obama initially proposed uh, and saying, no, NASA, I don't think you should get that. What do you think? (laughs) Are we stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place here? Or if if this goes off, what are the implications? You know, one of the things that Believe it or not, this this popped up first as as I was listening to what you what you mentioned there from the news. Um, this would be, I think, in some ways, it would risk a catastrophic blow to the whole concept of collaboration, international collaboration, in space. Because what- we're not we're not just backing out of of our own commercial space initiatives. I think we're potentially doing things that would affect uh, the ISS and and other international programs that would be part of the waterfall effect of of that cut in in investment in uh, in space flight and technology. I have to agree with you there. In fact, um, uh, Jeff Fouts in his uh, his uh, space policy blog here is called space politics that's uh you know www.spacepolitics.com um he made the following observation and it was one that i i thought about too um when after i i heard heard this it's talking about if you remember the quote it's talking about training potential crews for such flights now the money if i recall and 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 mr fouts makes makes the 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 uh the citation in his his blog too that is basically seed money for you know spacex orbital boeing etc to go ahead and develop these new commercial crew vehicles it is not for training crews if 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 i'm if i'm correct in that you're being completely, totally short-sighted, and you're going. If you go ahead and get rid of this, and I'm, you know, with the commercial space flight folks in this this respect, if you get rid of that subsidy, it's going to take them a heck of a lot longer to get the, everything started, and it will leave Russia sort of in the driver's seat for a heck of a lot longer, 
And I don't think Russia also wants to be in the driver's seat either. They're saying, look, you know, they see the dangers in that, I think, because they are saying, look, we, we can't do this. You know, we, we can give you reliable stuff. I mean, yeah, we're, we're the only, you know, uh, we're the only uh, car available right now to get up to the International Space Station. But they even they see that's kind of short sighted. You know, just in case something happens to Soyuz, you know, you know, Lord forbid. You know, what do you do? You know, now you've got no access to the to the space station. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a dangerous game. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think we'd be turning our back on a lot of obligations here. And, uh, you know, for being extraordinarily short-sighted. I think I think we do get rid of the $6 billion to commercial space. It is extraordinarily short-sighted. Well, of course, let's get through the holidays and get, uh, get the... Uh... 2011 Congress on their feet and see what happens, and that's that's likely where things are going to start to shake out a little bit better. Yeah, and that's what frightens me a little bit. A lot of the folks that there were articles all over the place in, in recent days. Now that the now that we have a new party coming in, uh, a new party that is sort of bent on, on trying to find ways to slash the budget. You know, their first things to fall are usually in in R and D and. And, uh, you know, this this definitely falls in, in the heading of discretionary spending. So it, it's going to be a very interesting, uh, very interesting time indeed. And uh, I guess it's going to be up to folks like us to let our hired help up on the Hill know that this is important, not only, you know, for, for this is an important thing for the country and for, uh, for, for the world in general. America's got a lead in this point. <laughs> the more I think, the more there is to think about with this. And I'm looking through some of those budget recommendations, just generally speaking, in federal budget, and it uh, it's it's not going to be easy to pull this off. So we'll see. We will wait and see. Indeed. Um, let me see here. There was some interest. Speaking of the International Space Station, there was some very interesting goings on today. Uh, this was uh, EVA number twenty six. For uh, the in support of uh, activities on the International Space Station, uh, the uh, EVA began. I guess it was about uh, a half hour behind schedule. I think it began around 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, Eastern Standard, and ended about. Uh, I guess it was about 4:22 or 4:23 uh, this afternoon, Eastern Standard. Um, the uh, primary objectives for the EVA were to go ahead and uh, uh, put a, a, work a small workstation on the side of the uh, Zvezda service module. Uh, I should mention that uh, it were the two uh, flight engineers, Fyodor Yurchikin and uh, Oleg, uh, oh, what was the gentleman's name here? Oh, Oleg Stripochka. There we go. I said, I said them right. Usually I botch, botch these Russian names. It's a, it's a darn shame for a good Polish boy to admit that, but uh, I, I botch these. <laughs> I, I usually... I usually blow blow up these these <laughs> Russian names. Um, no, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, uh, the objectives were also to go ahead and clean up and remove a robotics experiment called Contour, um, short for 
uh, development of a system for supervisory control over the Internet of the robotic manipulator in on board the Russian segment of the ISS. Say that ten times fast. That's easy for you to say. Exactly. But this thing apparently had been in place since, I guess, uh, the Expedition 19 crew. And uh, it, they apparently got their money's worth out of that, and they detached, cleaned that up and detached it. They also did another uh, experiment there. Uh, they, they actually pulled back a little insulation and wiped off the, the uh, I guess, the, the, the skin of the, uh, the actual skin of the, uh, uh, the metal there of the ISS to see if there was any type of bacterial growth back there. And, you know, zip the installation, um, zip the insulation back. So it'd be very interesting to see. I, I when I heard that that's what they were doing, I immediately thought of Apollo 12 and uh, the uh, surveyor uh, camera that they retrieved. Um, apparently, somebody had sneezed on part of the uh, the plate. I mean, everybody usually covers up. They're all wearing the bunny suits and all that, but. Uh, somebody had apparently errantly sneezed, and it got splashed onto the onto uh, part of the metal on the surveyor. And of course, it was probably wiped off. But lo and behold, guess what? The little critters were still alive three three years later, sitting on the lunar surface. So I'm I'm sure that it'll be interesting to see what the results of that were. The only problem that they did have, uh, your chicken was trying to go ahead and remove the camera. Uh, that was um, on the Rosfiat module. They were just going to go ahead and relocate it from uh, from one end of the module to the other end, so this way they can get a better look at uh, uh, vehicles coming in to dock with the uh, International Space Station coming in from the Rosfiat module. And gosh darn it, he had the toughest time getting that camera off. Apparently there was a piece of, uh, uh, or getting the, I'm sorry, getting the camera back on to that section. He got the camera off off of there, but, you know, just fine. It was just getting the camera back on onto the mounting bracket, and apparently there's some insulation stuck in the way, and it wasn't something that he could probably tear away, but, you know, so they just said after, you know, messing around with it for, for a long time, they just said, ah, the heck with it, you know, pack it up, got, pack it up, bring the camera in, we'll punt. So uh, that's what the crew did. But uh, all in all, a, a good, uh, successful um, spacewalk on board the ISS today. Uh, and if anybody was following it, we did tweet about that on the uh, uh, Talking Space Twitter feed. So if uh, every, anybody wants to go ahead and really take, uh, take a look at the nitty-gritty minutes from that, they can go ahead and do that. Now, that'd be something I'll have to look up. I was occupied the entire day, so I missed the whole event. But... Uh... It's it's interesting to hear about the details of what what all of the astronauts and cosmonauts can uh, can manage, even with uh, some of the difficulties. They they find workarounds or they go to Plan B. Yeah, the interesting thing too it was that uh, there were two crew members, including uh, um, I believe Scott Kelly, um, that were just sort of chilling in one of the Soyuz vehicles while. Um, um, uh, the other uh, the other crew members, uh, the uh, station commander uh, Doug Wheelock, and uh, uh, who's who's on who's our other uh, Shannon Walker? There we go. There we go. I knew I, <laughs> I knew it was in there somewhere. Um, we're over in the uh, in the Destiny module, still ex- performing some experiments in there. So usually, but uh, they had a pretty good clean shot to their Soyuz should uh, something happen. 
And uh, I guess what I, what I found interesting, too, uh, listening to this, you know, sort of monitoring what was going on, was that, uh, you know, the, the Russians do their spacewalks just a little differently than we do, where we're not all, you know, kind of sort of huddled in one area, um, you know, just in case something should happen. Uh, we usually, you know, heck, we usually have a uh, an active role, if you will, you know, either uh, with robotics or uh, with choreography or, or something like that, um, whereas the choreography is uh, done from the ground, usually on the uh, on the Russian things. The other thing, the other observation I had too was during night passes. Apparently, it's it's a good time for them to go ahead and just rest up. They go ahead and take a break for a little while during um, uh, when they're uh, in a uh, a night phase. So um, that's that's something that uh, we don't do. It's <laughs> just mm-hmm. just something very very interesting there. Anywho, um, I guess the the next commentary we've got here is uh, Wayne Hill over the weekend. Uh, said there's a train wreck coming in commercial space, and it's got nothing to do with Congress or anything like that. It's got a heck of a lot to do with NASA itself. He referred to a uh, release draft of a document dated uh, uh, October 8th of 2010. Um, is the ISS, it's called the ISS Crew Transportation and Service Requirements, and he said, well, I'd like you to go ahead and read this. Unfortunately, I can't can't allow that because it's stuck between, you know, behind NASA's firewall. And he said he's, he was kind of kind of disappointed looking at this. Apparently, these are the, uh, the requirements for, that uh, all of the commercial crew or commercial space is going to have to follow for their, their, their crew vehicles. And he said it was a mind-numbing 260 pages of densely spaced requirements. Uh, and he referred to uh, the, what he called the most disappointing is on, on pages uh, 7 through 11, and it's a table of 74 additional requirement documents that have to be followed in whole or in part. So he's basically saying that there is, when, when, when you, you look back at you know, the requirements for Mercury, Gemini, they were maybe three, four, at, t- at best, four pages, um, the service requirements for those things. Now we've got something that's 260 pages long for commercial crew. He's saying that, that NASA may actually be setting itself up for a train wreck because of the the red tape it is creating for a commercial crew. What do you think? Oh, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> you know, in, in one respect, you can you can design some some systems and 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 fly them or put them to work, and if it doesn't work the way you want. You back up, redesign, try again. And I know NASA is trying to do the ultimate for safety for anybody that's involved with commercial spaceflight. But uh, I think part of it is that risk-adverse thing we've talked about before. And um, I don't know. I, I see the need for regulation, but when you talk about a document that's 260 pages long and refers to... Uh, 74 additional requirements documents 
<laughs> yeah, I know. There, there's there's no there's no clear path through any of this, and I'm sure anybody any commercial space, you know, that's interested in 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 trying to make a go of this, you know, they've got to be awful interested to to deal with this. And I I sympathize. I think Wayne Hale's right. I think they're setting themselves up for failure. And uh, I wonder if it's because they want to own the the industry or if they're just pushing a point that if you want things different, this is what you have to walk away from. You think this, uh, again, he, he gives the example of the NASA Launch Services Organization, which you know, take, gets expendable launch vehicles for science satellites, saying that the, this particular, the NLS, he says, quote, has much less oversight and far fewer requirements than usual NASA programs because the providers have a proven track record of success launching rockets for DOD or commercial users. And he said, this model appears to us to be the way to allow commercial entities to provide safe but much more cost-effective spaceflight transportation. So I would love to learn more about, about that, but he's, he's saying that, you know, take this model, we've already used it, it works, um, we know, for instance, the known entities like Boeing that are also in the running on this, we know darn well they know how to launch stuff. Um, Lockheed Martin, same thing. Um, I believe uh, United Space Alliance is also somewhere in this wood pile here, so we know they know what to do. I mean, SpaceX may be the the you know the upstart in the group, but they've proven that they know a little bit about that. They proved that about uh, what about a year ago. So you know, in orbital, they've been doing it for you know for about twenty years. I, I think you may have something there, Mark. We might be you know NASA may be me trying to not wanting to let go of all this, and because of this, maybe creating this this whole new bureaucracy that for these commercial folks to set up and to be. Uh, to, to follow. And again, too, I guess they're also saying, hey, look, we know also know about safety. We also know, you know, we, we also know about lessons learned. You know, we could be a good resource there. You know, these are things to think about. You know, so, I'll, you know, to, just to play devil's advocate a little, little bit here. Yeah, we know you know how to build this stuff. We know you've got a great track record because we've worked with half of you. But we know a thing or two, too, and maybe we need to show you something. So um, I'm just going to just throw that out there in the hopes that in the hopes that <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're wrong about this. But, uh, you know, seeing somebody like Wayne Hill say it, I don't know. It, 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 it should be a wake up call. I'll be interested in hearing what he has to say as the uh, as the next six months, you know, come and go. Indeed. And speaking of more money being thrown at things, uh, it, the James Webb Space Telescope, um, there was a uh, uh, November 10th, there was a news conference um, about a, uh, a study that was asked for by Senator Barbara McCluskey of Maryland. Apparently, she is was really wondering this past summer what is going on with the James Webb Space Telescope. It's already a little bit behind schedule, and it's already it already had a uh, had had its uh, launch date pushed to back to 2013 at one point. Well, apparently, a study was uh, the study found out that it will cost another 1.5 billion dollars. 
uh, more than its current $5 billion life cycle cost estimate. And um, it will not fly until September of 2015. Um, I'm going to cite a Space News article from Friday, November 12th. Alan Stern, who was a former associate administrator of NASA for Science, um, said that the cost growth could, quote, ravage the agency's $1.1 billion annual astrophysics budget, which is 40% of which is already being consumed by the James Webb Space Telescope. And he's, he's saying, look, do we have to turn off our entire current fleet of astrophysics satellite just to support this one vehicle, or, or, or what's going on? Uh, Mr. Bolden went ahead and said, uh, yep, I'm not happy about this, and unfortunately it looks like I'm, I'm considering a uh, reallocation of management within the James Webb Space Telescope uh, project. What do you think here, Mark? Are we looking at another red tape mired thing or what? Yeah, I don't know. I love good science, and when you hear about a, you know, a, a new space-based observatory that'll do things never done before, you you tend to say, "I want it. Let's go. Let's keep moving. Let's make it happen." On the other hand, hey, it's it's time to put that pig on a diet. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm saying this with absolutely no knowledge of what all the implications are, but okay, it's behind the time scale that they had set for it. It's over the budget. So is it going to make any difference in this particular mission if it's delayed for several more years and the cost overrun gets spread out a little further and you don't kill off your other programs? I hate to see the, the, other programs being affected, you know that's the way it's going to go. Yeah, I hate to say it, but you may be right here. Um, a uh, Stanford University professor, uh, Roger, Roger Blanford, who chaired a uh, decadal survey panel, um, which looked at space science for the next decade, um, I believe they made their announcement, uh, I believe, over, over this past summer. And what they see the next decade, and the, 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 the as far as the space science is concerned, and, and the James Webb Telescope played a big role in that. But he said, even you know, clearly this is going to have a, a, and I'm quoting, clearly this is going to have a severe impact on the current program, let alone the recommended one. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, indeed, this we're going to have to put this pig on a diet, as you as you as you said, and. Uh, let, let this proceed. But uh, the sad part about it is I think the Hubble Space Telescope is, they're, they're talking about its lifetime now thanks to STS-125. That flight, uh, uh, what, 2013, they're saying its lifetime could be, I think. This thing is not expected to go now until 2015. So we're going to have a little bit of a, you know, space in between you know, telescope availability. So this is not, uh, this isn't, isn't going to be pretty. <laughs> Sad to say. Well, we have some, to end off the show, we've actually got some good news here. Uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory today, it was a, a news conference announcing that uh, for the first time, a, a black hole or possibly a new neutron star may have been seen being born out of an exploding star just about 20 times the mass of our own sun. 
right near the uh, right in our little cosmic neighborhood here. I believe the uh, the galaxy, and I'm I'm quoting here from an article by uh, Larry O'Hanion, Discovery Space here, uh, says that the baby black hole was located in in the M100 galaxy, which is about 1550 light years from Earth. I believe too that uh, this particular star had been seen before. Let me go ahead and just get that information here. The object in question is actually called uh, Supernova uh, 1979C, and they've been looking at this thing for about 30 years, but it was Chandra that went ahead and through, uh, through uh, um, taking X-ray measurements that, uh, you know, shoot, this thing could actually have seen a, could actually see either a black hole or what they're calling a, and let me get the exact name of the of the neutron star here. It's a, it's a type of neutron star. I'm, it's just the name of it now, now just, uh, just escaped me. But uh, one, one uh, astronomer speculated that we could be looking at uh, something like the Crab Nebula or the, the, the pulsar within the Crab Nebula. But this is this is kind of this this is kind of neat. This is a kind of an in, interesting uh, uh, interesting deal because now we can uh, actually see either you know either a young black hole gobbling up what's what's around it, or we could actually be seeing a, a neutron star being formed. And we're trying to figure out now what kind of star you know where's the de demarcation line? What kind of star becomes a black hole, or what kind of star becomes a, a neutron star, so uh, we're this could be a, this could be a good uh, path into into that, into learning you know more about uh, star you know star birth and star death. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I read where John Morris, who's the head of the astrophysics division of NASA's science mission directorate, he made the uh, statement that it's very rewarding to see how the commitment of some of the most advanced telescopes in space, like Chandra, can help complete the story. And, you know, that certainly is a footnote to what we're talking about with the James Webb Space Telescope. You've, you've got to have the equipment out there to have the science that you don't even imagine to, to come from that investment. So uh, this is interesting, and I, for some reason I'm... <laughs> My mind is going in the uh, in the joke a minute direction. I guess I'm filling in for Sawyer, but I, I think of the uh, I think of the little graphic that's on your uh, on your car's outside mirror says caution objects and mirror may be closer than they appear. <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it, actually. <laughs> I guess I don't have to be nervous about a uh, a new black hole at uh what was it you said 50 million uh yes 50 million light years away. Yeah, I guess that's not that close. So okay. <laughs> and it's okay. only a baby. Don't worry. I, I can't I can't go that fast anyway. I'd probably miss it even if I tried to get that that close. <laughs> well, anyway, at least we'll we're ending the show off on a on a good note. This is this is kind of neat. Um uh, again, I'm going to quote, go back to the Discovery Space uh, article here real quick, um, and I'm going to quote uh, uh, Dr. Alex uh, Filipchenko here. Um, he said, quote, we know several dozen stellar black holes in our galaxy, but we do not know how old they are. Um, 
and he's excited about this one because in essence this this thing occurred right in our back in back right in our, our stellar backyard interesting and, and it has it hidden had it yeah tongue guide it had its roots with an anor- amateur astronomer <laughs> that's very true that's right because this gentleman um, I'm trying to get the gentleman's name here um, who actually discovered SN. Uh, 1979C, but it did have its roots with an amateur astronomer, and people have been been studying this thing for about 30 years. So, uh, it, it, and it still has a has a story to tell. Mark, you had um, you want to go ahead and, and mention one more little story? Yeah, let's do another. Let's do another fun one. I'll make this quick. Uh, I don't know if anybody has seen this. I missed it uh, working today, but I see a news release from uh, Johnson Space Center and, of course, from uh, Washington headquarters. But NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, and the, uh, the, the tagline on it is, where in the world is NASA astronaut Scott Kelly? Kelly's <laughs> aboard the ISS, and he wants to test your knowledge of the world through geography trivia on Twitter. So if you're not following Station CDR Kelly, that's S-T-A-T-I-O-N-C-D-R, K-E-L-L-Y. If you're not following Station CDR Kelly, follow him. Because uh, apparently he started this little contest. He announced it, and he posted his first image today uh, to to play the geography trivia game and to get updates from Scott Kelly throughout his mission. Follow him, and you'll see some pictures where he wants you to figure out where he's at. So just for something fun to do, see how good you are at spotting the old terra firma below from the uh, from the beautiful ISS viewpoint. Indeed, follow, follow Scott Kelly. You might learn something. And with that, I think that wraps up Talking Space number 238. Again, thank you, everybody, for, for listening. And uh, thank you, Mark, for, uh, for hanging around with, with us tonight. Sure thing. Lots of good, uh, lots of good stuff going on. Hopefully, we'll have some more really good news in the uh, the next few days, a week or so, where we can tell you the some good news on uh, STS-133 and all of these other things we've been talking about that seems such such a tough a tough pull to get the positive spin on. Indeed, I'm sure there'll be some good news coming out of out of Cape Canaveral soon, sooner or later with STS-133. And thanks, Gene, for everything you've done, digging out the stories. I appreciate the work you put into this. If it was up to me, um, there's times I'm lucky to know one or two things going on, and I appreciate uh, the the depth and the breadth of the, the news that you survey for us. Thank you, sir. I can't do it alone, though. So I appreciate uh, your help and, and the help of the rest of the team, too. Um, which, by the way, I hope uh, uh, if they're listening... Uh, uh, Sawyer, I know you've got a couple adventures planned, so uh, happy trails and uh, hope uh, things go well. And Gina, we missed you tonight. Uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. And again, everyone, thank you again for listening. This is this is Talking Space for the week of Monday, November 15th. And uh, we're out. <laughs>